everybody and welcome to the very 110th Shut Up and Sit Down podcast brought to you by the self-isolated folks at Shut Up and Sit Down. This is a podcast about board games. Does that sound boring? Oh my goodness, are you in the wrong place? My name is Quentin Smith and I am joined on this call by Tom Brewster. Hello, Tom. Hello, Quins. And Ava Fox 4. Hello, Ava. Oh, it's terrifying. Are you, are you nervous? Are you afraid? I'm a little bit nervous, but I think it's going to be I, If you're not aware, Ava is our, uh, well, Ava writes the news. Ava has been appearing in, where, where would people most commonly find you on the site, Ava? Uh, it's mostly in the news. Um, I have the uh, column of tactics and tactility, which is lots of little pieces about the feelings and emotions of board games um, that is slowly trickling out. Oh, that's how. <laughs> well, you are in a very trickly <laughs> part of the UK. Uh, you are because usually, you know, you are sequestered up in the sort of damp northern sort of inland valley kind of part of England. I have a very vivid mental image for what your sort of. Uh, the area around your home looks like, which might be entirely incorrect. I mean, my uh, my interview video it featured a a tiny little trickle of a river from very nearby to mm. where I live. So I'm assuming that you think that I live in the I woods. I do, yeah. And I'm not going to be disabused of that notion. Um, but uh, <laughs> Ava, very nice to have you on the podcast. It's a nice bonus of everything happening with COVID that uh, we get to see more of you and play more games with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's been lovely. In this episode of the podcast, we have got a whole bag of board games a heaving sack uh we are going to be talking about cthulhu death may die a game of running little miniatures around and shooting tentacle monsters again uh we're going to be talking about madeira a game of oh goodness me how would you describe madeira ava um lots of dice trying to please there you go we're going to be talking about a little role-playing game called thousand year old vampire in which tom you know what, Tom? Why don't you describe Thousand-Year-Old Vampire? I make children into candles. <laughs> Tom's been having a lot of fun uh, by himself. Uh, we'll get Then the big discussion we're all looking forward to is chatting about the defense of Procyon 3. This is a sci-fi epic that was just on Kickstarter, but has a pretty robust implementation on uh, Tabletop Simulator. So we've been able to play this very ambitious sci-fi game months and months and months ahead of manufacturing. So I have been having a little poke around a giant box called Cthulhu Death May Die. So this is a giant uh, game full of miniatures that was kickstarted in the summer of 2018. And in late 2019, it got shipped out. Uh, It's designed by none other than Eric Lang and Rob Davio, which if you're a dork like us, then you you may know those names, designers of such story games as Blood Rage and Pandemic Legacy. This is also a game put out by Simon, and it's a Kickstarter, which means it is full of gorgeous miniatures. Um, it's also a Cthulhu game, so contained in the box, you've got little people with Tommy guns, you've got a nun with an axe. Uh, Rasputin is in the game uh, as someone who throws fireballs. Uh, why? <laughs> Don't know. Well, I mean, I kind of do know, actually. So what this game is trying to do is produce something like an HP Lovecraft, you know, go and stop the birth of an elder god game but directed by quentin tarantino those were the exact words that eric lang um, gave me when i saw him at a convention last year it's also setting out to um produce something pretty interesting like it's trying to be an action game that is the last sort of 10 minutes of a lovecraft movie that was never made 
So while to look at this game, Cthulhu Death May Die, you might be reminded of a game like Mansions of Madness with players working together and running their little investigator miniature around big map tiles that you sort of jigsaw together to create a city street or a mansion or a dingly dell full of tentacles or whatever. But unlike Mansions of Madness, which has some violence and puzzling and mystery solving, Cthulhu Death May Die is just violence. There's, I mean, a tiny bit of sort of stealth and puzzling, but mostly... The game starts with your characters who have like been through a whole story up to this point, kicking open the door to like the cult or the sewer or wherever you are. And then while every mission might have you doing like, you know, maybe some more or less sneaking or puzzling, mostly, you know, you've just kicked down the door and you're going to start shooting people and you're going to try and put a bullet in Cthulhu's head. You know, Quinns, that sounds like it really is a game that understands the core themes of Lovecraftian fiction. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting, right? Because I do have some respect for it. Saying that as the guy who complained, you know, very tediously for the last five years that we have all these board games about shooting Cthulhu in the face of the shotgun. And that's not what Lovecraft was about. Lovecraft was about themes of, you know, humanity feeling small and the cosmos and the eldritch. But let's face it, you know, we're here now. You know, these games are about shooting tentacle monsters with shotguns and throwing dynamite in Cthulhu's face. And if we are here now, I do have an amount of respect for Cthulhu Death May Die for being like, well, let's just go full-on action movie. Sure. Let's just actually deliver these things. The author is thoroughly dead, and in, in both senses, in the Bartian sense and also in the literal sense. So why not just run riot with the property? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. It's like, <laughs> think about what poor Sherlock Holmes has been through in the last <laughs> you know, five, six years of, uh, of people messing around with a free license. What to tell you about Cthulhu Death May Die? Um, it's gorgeous. Um, it's very expensive. Also, unlike every other Lovecraft game ever, you start Cthulhu Death May Die insane. Um, so these games usually have a mechanic where you see something spooky and your character goes, ah, and their psyche gets another like hairline crack in it, like a mirror. Um, in Cthulhu Death Might Die, you are pretty much sort of like hurling yourself around like a crazy person. I mean, oh, I'm still kind of uncomfortable using terms like crazy and insane and oh, you're so mm. powerful because you're going nuts because obviously that's like this reductive and toxic and slightly last millennium view of mental health. But, I mean, Cthulhu Death May Die does have kind of a lot of fun with it. So if you're like the highly strong woman with an axe, you know, who brawls and kills people, you know, there's, there's characters in this who are flat, straight out murderers from the 20th century. <laughs> Do they have any way of uh, justifying, like, if you're starting in the middle of something like that, if you're starting in the middle of the battle and you're immediately jumping into, oh God, I've forgotten his name. If you're starting in the middle of the battle and Rasputin is hurling fireballs, like I feel like you need some backstory to explain why Rasputin is there in the first place and why he's shooting fireballs. And if you don't have a narrative for that, I'm just kind of... Well... How do you feel that? How do you feel that you are actually a Russian priest hurling fire at <laughs> well, this is kind of what I wanted to talk about today because the thing is that Cthulhu Death May Die is not necessarily a game I'd like hurry to recommend. Um, in terms of what it looks like, it looks like Mansions of Madness, but in terms of what it plays like, it plays like Descent or Imperial Assault, mm. where there's lots of flashy dramatic action and players high fiving each other because they roll a dice and got what they needed, and now someone's dead. But when we talk about narrative and you know, does this game justify like the story it's trying to tell? It's interesting because unlike Descent and Imperial Assault, which are games with campaigns, you know, where necessarily each mission is more exciting because 
you know, it's at the tale of five missions you've played that took you up to this point. Cthulhu Death May Die sort of wants to have the dramatic finale, but doesn't do any of the build-up. You know, if you're Rasputin and the mission starts with you kicking open the door to a cult, you might get a card of flavor text that's like, you know, ah, you've been trashing this cult for a long time and you've been doing all this investigation. You know, stuff you would actually do in something like the Arkham Horror card game. Whereas in this, it just sort of says, and now you've got to stop the ritual. And it's peculiar. You know what it's like, Ava? It's like sitting down when your housemates are watching a movie and you haven't really seen the first two thirds, so you wouldn't watch it, but your housemates are like, oh no, this is the awesome bit. You know, It's like sitting down at the very end of Inglorious Bastards mm-hmm. and being like, oh no, this is cool. They're going to kill a bunch of Nazis in a cinema. Yeah, except um, presumably it's more like the end of a Bond film that you walk into where you just get to see a spectacular <laughs> bit at the end and it doesn't really matter that you've not seen the bit before that because you've already, because you know yes. what the beginning of a Bond film is like. Absolutely. <laughs> it doesn't really and, matter. You know, in in defence of the designers, sort of like what they set out to do, the thing about Lovecraft fiction is that nobody knows what's going on anyway. I mean, it's very silly in the Arkham Horror card game. You know, you, you might spend whole hours of in-game time trying to research something, and at the end, the flavor text will be like, you just don't know what this is, because humans aren't meant to comprehend stuff. So I can kind of see the point of a board game that's like, you did all the investigation, you have no idea what's going on, but it's time to kill some people. <laughs> you know, it sort of fits the theme better. But it's peculiar. The point I wanted to make about Cthulhu Death May Die, and what I found is interesting, is I have played a lot of finales in games. You know, finales that come at the end of a campaign, or, you know, even just a fight in Twilight Imperium might feel like a finale if you've spent six hours leading up to that battle. And what strikes me about Cthulhu Death May Die is for all of the action, it's not enough to just structure a game like a finale. It's not enough to just say, This is like the first half of Cthulhu Death May Die is going to be the run-up to a boss battle, and then there's the boss battle. Because a boss and a finale doesn't mean half as much without all of the build-up, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Like I've, I think I've, um, I've talked about before. I've written about before the idea that while it can be quite frustrating to have a game that takes quite a long time to play out, the length of time that you have put into a thing like increases the drama and increases the stakes. So even though Battlestar Galactica, for example, is a lot longer than you it might need to be, the fact that you've spent like two hours arguing with each other means that when you are betrayed, that has so much more weight to it. And I think like just skipping to the end is. Yeah, it's it's a risky thing to do, and I don't know how you make something feel like it's got that drama. There's a whole interesting thing, though, because I've found that the, I've had a, almost an opposite experience with these games that take like a long time. So I played some Comet the other day, and we got to the end of that game, and it took so... I mean, we were playing it on Tabletop Simulator, but we got to the end of that game, and it felt so long and so protracted that it was just kind of... We wanted it to end because we wanted it to end, not for some crazy finale. The last few turns of that game didn't feel like a kind of mess of drama. It felt like everyone was just kind of grabbing points from everywhere and someone ended up being the winner. It didn't crunch down to that point of being like, oh, you know, it's just one, you know, we're one step away from cracking it or something like that. And I think that the style of a game building up to a finale works much better in a in a campaign game. And it sounds like Cthulhu Death May Die isn't that. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> no, that I think I could summarize my feelings on Cthulhu Death May Die as in the end of my game of it, you know, we, you know, massed our grenades and shotguns and in quite a tense sort of dice 
festy moment, we finally, you know, put the sort of nail in the coffin or the bullet in the skull or whatever this thing had instead of a skull of the big boss. And yet all I can do is compare it to a similar moment I had at the end of the first campaign of the Arkham Horror card game where Again, there was a big monster that crawled out of a portal and we killed it. But what made the Arkham Horror card game finale so much better wasn't actually fighting this thing. It was the fact that the campaign had made me so invested in my character that I was considering running away from the big big bad. I was considering letting the world burn because I didn't want to lose my character. The reason finales are exciting is because of the characters that are in them. And I mean, I guess to take this full circle, it's like what I ever said about you know, do you feel like Rasputin at the start of the game? Well, no. And if you don't feel that ability to embody your character, then the whole thing just feels like, you know, you're t- taking your steps in a play almost rather than actually inhabiting someone who's going through this. This actually feels really similar to another game that I played recently called Sanctum, where your adventure is going up this sort of long winding road to fight this big bad. And along the way, you're upgrading your character, getting stuff and building up something and it almost has the opposite problem where i got invested in this character being the best at their job and then the big bad right at the end just felt like a complete waste of time it felt like we'd been building to this big moment and then killing the end monster felt like a given it felt like that was what was going to happen the person who wins is the person that has the most health after killing the big monster which felt deeply strange as a for a game where you're building up this character to like put them through the ultimate test and the ultimate test isn't like can you pass it's you're going to get 100% most likely but how many you know you might drop down just a little bit because <laughs> you you one unlucky dice roll sends you flying back and it's a really strange game where it has you building up to this big finale and the big finale felt like like nothing and it almost does drop you into that same position where there's no context to what you're doing it's very much like a diablo style rpg where the story comes very much second to the loot but it just it left me feeling so sour after that game it was like great that's it. <laughs> uh, are you two ready for me to say something enormously pretentious now? I'm, I'm very ready. I mean, I'm always ready for that, Quinns, but hey. Okay, well, I haven't got Ava's consent yet. I, so I, I'm just... I cannot wait. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the reason that all movies, uh, or at least all you know, Hollywood and commercial movies, have a love element, have a love story, have a romantic side. When I was younger and knew less, I thought it was just to sort of like appeal to a broader market. It's not true. The reason you need love and romance in a story is because only love is something that is able to drive characters to the point of um, the stakes being high enough for a finale to be executed in a movie. If you don't have love, then ultimately when the going gets really tough, the character can just walk away from a situation. But when you enter love into the equation, they can't, which enables you to put them in boxes. And I guess that's kind of where I'm at. Listening to you talk about Sanctum reminded me that you know it's not enough to shoot Cthulhu in the face. You need some amount of love in the game and in other games it's for your ca- not necessarily between players so although, there should be you know. a romance mechanic in cthulhu <laughs> death may die and in sanctum and that would make them perfect games <laughs> exactly no no what i'm saying is you need to love something and in the arkham horror card game that loving something is your character or right. when i played pandemic legacy i loved the world and wanted to save it and it's awful I altruistic of you well i'm just that kind of guy <laughs> so let me get this right Crins. what you're saying is you need some love in your lovecraft ah <laughs> So given the uh, current situation, I've been diving into uh, Madeira, which is available on Board Game Arena and is a 2013 game that I think I first played about three, four years ago. 
um, and had slowly been chipping away at on the uh, online implementation ever since. Madeira puts you in that classic role of colonizing a random island in the middle of the Atlantic. It's actually a series of, I think there's three islands or two islands of Madeira. The thing that is interesting about it is that it is weird. There is just a lot of different parts <laughs> going into it. I think I was trying to work out what it actually means and looking back at some of the theming. And basically the idea is that as Madeira was developed, different types of crops became important and you constantly had uh, the... It was an outpost for the rest of Portugal's colonising imperialism and a kind of testing ground for that. So throughout the game, you are attempting to fulfil a series of different demands that the crown is putting on you. So the goal is to amass points by doing these odd little jobs like having lots of people in some cities or shipping some things to one place or shipping some things to another place. Um, All of which is represented by having people or ships or pieces on different parts of this slightly elaborate board with an island split into segments. And even that isn't the core of the game. The core of the game is that (laughs) in each of these sections of this island, there are a couple of people. Those people are going to be randomly shuffling around through the course of the game, and each of them gives you an action. But the action also... (laughs) later on gives you an opportunity to do a slightly different action based on the place where that character is at. I'm aware this all sounds like nonsense, and it kind of is. Like, there's there's a very elaborate, you're sort of dice drafting, and then that dry, dice lets you take certain actions, which will trigger another action later on. And it kind of creates a weird economy of prioritization, where every dice you place is giving you two different things, but you've got to make sure that you're maximizing those things, even though you don't know how much it's going to cost. And because the dice also dictate how much the secondary, like the building action that you're associated with, costs. Depending on how many people have put dice there, it will then randomize the cost of that. And the more people who have done it, the more likely it is that you'll get that thing for cheap. So you kind of want to do the things that other people are doing, but you also want to do them before they do them. Uh, There's also an opportunity to chuck pirates in the mix. Some of the dice are pirates. I Whoa, don't boy. Know. There's what? so much in this game. And it is a. it feels to me like it's a prototype for the kind of like big, hefty monstrosity that we've kind of got quite a few of over the last few years where there's lots of different moving parts that each generate points in a different way and give you something to focus on and kind of weird little obstacles that kind of uh, pull you around the island and pull you into different actions, different decisions. And it is it is weird. It is horrible to explain. I would not want to teach it to someone. <laughs> which is a big a big problem. <laughs> um, I can't imagine where I'd even start with teaching because it's the sort of game, it's got like, oh, there are five phases, A, B, C, D, and, and E. And in each of those phases, there is up to four steps. <laughs> in phases mm. B, C, and D, you can do this little thing to turn some goods into another green, but you can't do that in phase E. Oh, no, don't try and do it in phase E. Um, Whatever you do, don't try and do it in phase yeah. <laughs> or face the consequences. <laughs> it sounds like a real, like a sort of mechanic soup, like a load of Euro games have been put into a blender and you're sort of playing through all these different, like one of those games where you can teach each individual rule, but the the meaning of those rules isn't going to become apparent until you severely goof it, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like uh, every individual element, is quite simple and straightforward. Like, oh, if you want to take an action, you pick a dice, 
that you've already got in front of you and you place it onto the thing you want to do. And then you do one thing. But there's this ramification of doing that means that you may have to do that a different thing later on. And you've got to think about whether you're willing to pay that money or get raided by pirates or whatever pulls into that. And And is it easy to like predict the that what's going to happen to you later on but based on your previous actions like could you plan it out because this sounds like an absolute ap nightmare for someone like me who will scrutinize their turns to a point of no return <laughs> i think it does quite a good job i think you have to build up an instinct for what's what is available but you only ever have three dice in front of you and potentially one or two pirate dice that you can pull on if you have someone in prison i, I don't know <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> There's only five things you can do at a time. And you can only plan to the end okay. of the current turn because the whole thing will reshuffle at the beginning of the next round. So there is there's there's a horizon to things that makes it difficult to plan too far ahead. <laughs> Even though you're actually having to pick these crown requests, like the kind of weird orders of the Portuguese royal family, um, one at the beginning of each round and they will dictate what you're aiming to do in the slightly longer term. So what would you say uh, is, just to give us a sense of what it's like to play, what was a really exciting moment in your game of Madeira? <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. I love asking anyone playing a heavy Euro game, like what's exciting? And they're like, oh, well, these pairs in a box, I'm going to sell them for so much money. And you're like, good for you. Um, do you know what? It is It is one of those games that, that rarely does that. I think like the very first time I played, the satisfying thing was things actually coming together at the end. I think there is a bit, when at the end of some of the rounds, you will fulfill your crown requests. And you know exactly what the maximum points are that you can get from any two of those tiles. And when you pull that off, when you get two things or three things absolutely spot on, it's great. Like you can see exactly <laughs> when you have completely maximized your turn. And wow. that is incredibly satisfying. And that's quite a rare thing. Normally there's always a bit of like, oh, I wonder if there was another route I could have done that. But no, you've got the tile in front of you. You've got your mid to long-term goal there. And if you can do it and you can max it out, you feel great. That's interesting. I'm reminded of when I taught um, Great Western Trail to a friend of mine who'd never played a Euro game before. And uh, she, at the end of the rules explanation, said, I think I get it, but what what, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> and I was like, well, that's kind of the, the game, yeah. I guess. But it, it really brought home to me how often in Euro games when someone's like, okay, but what should I be doing? The answer is, <laughs> so to have a Euro game where it's saying, you know, no, you can max this out. You can have the best possible result. It's pretty Yeah, I think that's definitely something that it does well, is it leads you down a particular path and kind of forces you into that. And also, like those crown requests, they are something that you get to pick. So you do get to decide what your long-term goals are, but it's limited by other things. It's limited. That's got to stay in the edit. <laughs> but it's limited by other things. <laughs> uh, yeah, so you get to pick your crown request, but it's limited by other things. Like where you are in the passing order will have dictated what, what dibs you will get on certain things, but they're also tied to the dice you get. So it dictates what actions you'll be able to do in this round. So there's lots of things pushing you and pulling you in different directions, but it does always, at the beginning of the round, you've got an idea what you're going to be going for by the end of that round. And actually, it kind of staggers them a little bit, so you kind of know what you're going to at the end two rounds away or the very end of the game. 
And that builds up and that, yeah, it definitely gives you quite clear instructions on what you're supposed to be doing, even though everything is quite convoluted. I think that there's something about a game like Great Western Trail, while it is less clear in what your final goals are or what route you could take through it, it does also, it has more elegance than this. Like this feels like something that is a lot of odd decisions to make different things matter in different ways at different times. Like this this thing, like I don't know if I explained it very clearly, but like when you take an action, you put a dice onto a person and then you do the action associated with that person. Then later on, depending on how many dice have been put on that person, you will get a chance to do a different action that's entirely unrelated to what was on there and it will have been randomised which person is in which place. And it will cost a totally different amount depending on how many people have put dice on there. So you could have done the same action over and over again to make sure that you'll get the other action for cheaper. Or you'll have gone there and then found that nobody else wanted to go there. You've been distracted by other things. And then you're being (laughs) asked to pay like 10 money, which could be all of the money that you have, to do something that you kind of want to do. And then there's the pirates, which means someone might have put a pirate dice on there, which means that if you don't choose to pay for the thing, you actually get attacked by pirates instead. I don't, I don't know. There's <laughs> <laughs> This segment has been you getting continually more exasperated with the rule spaghetti that has been laid in front of you. <laughs> it's, it's hard, though. I, I, I really enjoy it. <laughs> I find it very satisfying. Like I find like it tickles the right bits of my brain. It works really well as an online thing playing asynchronously. I think um, it would probably be mm. uh, a bit too long to try and play it on Board Game Arena with like a, a, a group who are sat at the table having to kind of puzzle through it. All. Right. But it's the sort of game that like emphasizes exactly what I like the most about asynchronous play which is that you have got time to look through all of the options. You have got time to think about the exact details of how the rules work. I wouldn't say you normally get taught in in paralysis uh, playing in person. Mm. Like it, it goes along at quite a bit of a pace because, like I say, it's got short horizons for when you can actually plan for. But still, it's something that in having the time to enjoy the decisions that you're making... <laughs> Um, is kind of a great thing about asynchronous online play. I think I had a really similar experience playing through the ages, both asynchronously and synchronously mm. with Matt and uh, Clark, where we were we were playing the playing it when I was just sat there at the table. It felt like I was just breezing through this game, making bad decision after bad decision, just kind of being completely swallowed by its systems. But then playing it asynchronously, it's such a nice way of looking at a game because you just take every turn as its own thing. So you sit and you consider your options and you take the best course of action and then you've got, you know, a couple hours till your next turn and then you'll do the same thing again. You'll look at it, you'll decide, you'll have a toy around with what's available and then you'll proceed. And there's something lovely about having just, you know, the idea of having infinite time for your turns might be to some people really almost restrictive because it forces that analysis paralysis because you'd be thinking that oh if i've got unlimited time to think about my turn then i'll overthink it and overthink it but it actually makes the game quite calming almost because everything just happens so glacially that you're not being rushed into your next decision straight away A game that I've been playing recently is the 1000-year-old vampire which is a solo role-playing game by Tim Hutchings 
uh, I'll get it straight out of the gate. I think this is a fantastic piece of creative writing, both from the standpoint of the book itself and your engagement with it. Um, it's a gorgeous little slim volume and learning the rules just takes a couple of minutes. It's 20 pages of, well, not 20 pages, 10 pages or so of rules with some lovely explanations to get you into the mindset of this universe that you're now going to be inhabiting. The game is very simple. You have a character sheet, which includes some different sections. You have the memories section, which is going to give you uh, a history of the life of your vampire, which will ebb and flow because it's a thousand years. You're going to forget some things. You'll have five memories, which each one is made up of three experiences. So each individual memory will contain a little snapshot of your vampire's life, but because it only contains five, they'll come and go throughout the course of the story. You have your skills, which can be various different things that you'll check and uncheck when they're used. You have resources, characters that you know, and a mark. And the mark is what separates you as a vampire. You might have a horrible, I don't know, there's the example in the rule book is that one of the vampires that was created had their head cut off. And the mark is that their head keeps wobbling around on their neck and they hide that by having a big scarf. <laughs> um, We've all been there. So what I love about Thousand Year Old Vampire so far is that it's a wonderful engine for dark comedy as well as being a really lovely kind of mindful activity to just sit and inhabit this weird world for 10 minutes you can play the game uh, in two ways you can play it in a sort of short form where you just kind of whiz through it in one session and you keep following prompts and your response is very short or you can play it as more of a diary game where you're writing a whole paragraph per prompt but you're only doing one a night i'm playing it somewhere in between i'm using my laptop to type out my responses so they get quite long but i'm doing a few every night because this game has such a oh just one more feeling to it you want to roll the dice and see what prompt you land on next i should explain that the core of the game is once you've constructed the basic vampire through a series of questions you then will roll a d10 and a d6 and progress through the a book of prompts and each prompt you will then answer and it will check your skills and add new memories and so on and so forth uh, if you ever roll the same number there's multiple prompts on the same page that you'll descend through which kind of lengthen that storyline almost but the best way to kind of explain the game is just to read out uh, the first three of my experiences in the book so these oh, didn't please <laughs> so these didn't necessarily happen in order is what's important because a memory in this game is like a collection of experiences, but the experiences can happen over hundreds of years or they can be however far apart. But this was something that happened early on. So the first thing I wrote was, I am Kenneth, a priest from Kent who watches over the children of the parish. I am an educator and role model to many. And the next prompt is, I use my guise as an educator to lure and consume the children of the parish in the cellar of my cottage, their bones piled into neatly tended graves, to alleviate the guilt, if only a little. And then the third prompt is, the fat from their bodies provides a mighty fit for candle wax, which is sold to the parish at large in service of vigils for missing children. God rest their souls. So it leads you down this incredibly dark path. Well, I mean, I say the game leads you down. Let's face it, I led myself down that dark path. But the prompts are so exciting and interesting and immediately they grab your attention in being these really, your imagination just fires off straight away from these wonderfully creative prompts. Um, what was the prompt that led to your vampire's uh, candle-making hobby? Uh, so the, the first prompt was, that, so the I am Kenneth one was just the basic description of my vampire. And the second, was a, the second prompt was, I rolled to that page and it was, uh, you have you have to devise a certain way of feeding using your uh, skills, and my skill was that I'm an educator. Uh, so I was like, oh, "Well, God. this makes sense." And then the third one, the fat from the bodies, was you find. So I rolled those dice, and I 
I got on the dice a six and a six, which means they cancel out because you subtract one from the other. So I did the next prompt on the same page, which was, you find a way to profit from your feeding habit. <laughs> How do you do this? And I was like, hmm, well. <laughs> but it's genuinely so, like, I'm barely that far into it, but already I've got a rival called Sajion who came into my house and battered me with a cricket bat. I've bribed city guards to make sure that I can ensure a mis- uh, I remain a mystery to the public and my feeding habits are something that no one finds out about. But it's just this slippery slope because so many of the prompts tell you to destroy resources or to test these skills in a way that will kind of make your vampire deeply uncomfortable. Um, the one that I finished on last night was that my house was burned to the ground and I lost my nice thing. So now I'm hungry and out for blood. And there's a nice thing where um, the way that the skills work in the game is once you check a skill, you don't use it until you have all your skills are checked. So I might get into a situation where my nice, good-natured pastor uh, only has the revenge-driven skill to tick. <laughs> and my, you know, a nice meeting with the town council might have to test my revenge-driven skill and may end in a bloodbath. Who knows? But it's just a... It, it's. Like I say, it's got that, oh, I'll just do one more feeling. When you finish a prompt, you'll find yourself laughing so much at what's happened that you just want to roll the dice again and go straight from the top. Wow, I immediately want this to be a recurring feature of, like, in future podcasts, I want just a brief update on how <laughs> Kenneth the Vampire is doing. I'm tempted to go full, lean full into the dark comedy aspect and make Kenneth a slightly bumbling but very dangerous character but also i think the game opts for as whatever style you want to play you can go for something that's kind of funny and and a bit silly and also dark or you can take it incredibly seriously there's uh, either end of that spectrum is really well catered for with those prompts and also i'm really excited to get later into the game because it is the thousand year old vampire and you can only hold five sets of memories these are necessarily going to be forgotten these atrocities will be put to the back of my vampire's mind um as he increasingly you know, lives forever. Um, and you can only, you know, characters will come and go and the resources that you treasured so much in the early game will just get dropped. And it means that the narrative is constantly driving forward, or at least I imagine it will. I am not to that stage in the game where I'm forgetting vast quantities of memories, but it stops your tale from going in circles. The fact that you have to cut these memories means that eventually the whole making children into candles plotline will be dropped. <laughs> I won't dwell on it too long and we'll move on to, to Pastures New. I, for years, have been so fascinated by all of the amazing work that's going into like the tabletop RPG scene now. I mean, even just, I feel, 10 years ago, the idea of a game defined by you losing things, you know, losing skills, resources, and memories. Mm. That seems like such a novel idea, but of course, like that's going to make any story you're telling so dramatic, you know, and to see what your character does like up against it like that. Do you feel you have an idea of who Kenneth is or are you, to what extent are you learning as you play? I think that the start of the game is very, it's very bare bones when you start, you know, you have, you create a few characters, you create your main vampire, and then you sort of start hanging traits off that vampire as things develop. Um, and I think obviously the inciting incident being you have turned into a vampire, ha- like <laughs> there's no normal way to react to that. So the options for how you develop your character are unbelievably wide. So it, very quickly, I've developed this idea of Kenneth being initially a character that was very ashamed of their vampirism and and was it was at odds with their religious upbringing to, to eat children. It is barbaric. Uh, but very quickly, he's just become a slimy boy, um, which is just just great. Just very quickly, he's like, you know what? I'm going to pay off lawmen so that I can eat children in my basement. Um, <laughs> and how many, like, how far into the game until you arrived at that particular, like... Oh, like, like three prompts. It's <laughs> The descent into savagery has been 
almost immediate. But what's great is if I wanted to take it incredibly seriously, the time span of this can be as long as you want it to be. There's no fix like this happens the next day. It says very obviously you can, one experience can be, I roam the desert for a hundred years. You know, it's fine. You can skip huge periods of time. So I could have protracted that descent into savagery over multiple prompts. But, you know, it was just sillier just to go straight in for the child <laughs> eating. Uh, why not? <laughs> and then how does it end? Um, you know, this is the great thing. I don't know. Uh, there's obviously a limited number of prompts in the book. And when you get to some at the end, the vampire will just, you'll you'll have to resolve the story somehow. So that could be something that I will later come back to. How does Kenneth end up well he can't die so <laughs> but how does the story end up resolving is something that we'll get to i do eventually. really like the idea um, and there's something that the the narratively the game is about being forced to do horrible things because you've you've become a vampire you know you've had this kind of like supernatural thing forced upon you that forces you to do horrible things hmm. but also structurally what the game is making you do <laughs> is come up with horrible things. <laughs> I'm sure you could find ways to strong arm the prompts into your vampire being yeah. a saint. <laughs> um, but the way that they tend, the way that they're stacked right now as you're going to have to do horrible things, but what's worse is you're going mm. to forget about them. Wow. Well, that sounds absolutely amazing. I- I'll tell you something else that our team has got a little bit obsessed with, something that the three of us have played together with Matt a couple of times now, and that is the defense of Procyon 3 a sci-fi, I think it's fair to call it a bit of a sci-fi epic that was just on Kickstarter and designed by David Turchi, who you might know for such ambitious games as Cerebria, The Inside World, Anachrony, um, Welcome to Dino World. Uh, they were also involved in Kitchen Rush. But uh, the defensive Procyon 3 is sort of their baby. Um, so it's a, it's the it's the love child. No, wait, love child. There's no love involved. It's just the child of someone who makes ambitious games and this is like their pet project so you'd think it would be a bit ambitious and it's not that bad it's not that bad Um, what a selling point i mean no when i say not that bad i mean in terms of complexity and ambition but it's sure it's i mean i i'll i'll go out there and say i had fun with our first couple of games of it before we get into it do you two like this game uh, I don't know. I don't I know either. Know. I don't know either. And so oh, that's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping we can figure it out. So okay, I'm going to get the audience to picture the scene. Um, you have got not one board, but two square boards. Okay. That's because this is a team game with one player from each team taking on the other person. So uh, the forces of humanity have set up a little colony on a planet. But oh no, aliens are invading the colony. Why? Sort of hand-wavy world building. Artifacts. Okay, fine, we'll go with that. Um, It's good world building. I quite like it. I like the fact that the aliens... I'm sorry, I'm just going to interrupt there (laughs) to say I like the fact that the world building has the aliens being coming and invading and they look like monsters and they look like they were all terrible. But actually what it is is that the humans are about to activate a press a button that will end the universe um and they uh so the aliens would just show up and they're like what what are you doing and just just try to uh attack everybody to try and say no put that down so i should stop uh hiding what this game is because it's so bizarre the reason <laughs> we're talking about it in such a cagey way is we've all only played bits of it because the way you learn it is that each player is sort of for your first game goes away to read their section of the manual 
So you've got the humans on the planet that's being invaded. They're going to fight an alien player who's playing the alien invasion forces. Then the other board is deep space, and the human armada, the sort of cavalry, is flying towards this planet, and there are a bunch of alien ships in orbit as well. And these two games interact with one another. Um, But what Ava's referring to there is that when you read the manual, you get the story from your side's perspective. Um, So everyone in this game thinks they're the good guys, which is pretty cool. But the reason it's so weird is that like we were cracking up during our first game of it because we all only knew how to take our own turn because all of the four games are completely different. If you're playing the alien ground forces, you're sort of doing this card management, de- sorry, the human ground forces, you're doing like a card management deck building thing, the human arm. Well, you all have cards, but you all use the cards in different ways, I suppose is the way to put it. But it was this very silly thing where like when I was taking my first turns as the human defense forces, I would say, okay, I'm going to play this card to activate my principal hero and then use these other cards for their momentum actions. And I was saying words that literally no one else at the table understood. (laughs) And that was true for all of us. Um, How would you two say the first game went for you? I think that the the first game was really exciting because that feeling of an unknowable enemy is so prevalent you literally have no idea what the enemy is capable of and how they do it so going into that it's really it's such an interesting experience in one of the things that underpin that first game that the the positive thing was this unknowable enemy and that was really exciting being like i've no idea what their capabilities are the negative of that however was that i just couldn't get it out of my head that matt was accidentally cheating because, because you have no way of checking what another player's well i mean you could go and look at their rule book but you just have to trust that they know the rules for their side because you've not read that part of the rule book you've got your own thing to deal with so every turn matt was doing something and he'd wipe out a load of my force and i went really yeah are you doing that honestly i had exactly the same feeling when ava would do something particularly cool i'd be like oh yeah that doesn't seem fair, but I, and I couldn't like I couldn't push the issue and say, "You sure those rules are right?" You know, it's like yeah, it's weirdly passive aggressive. There is something to mention about the fact that the rules are are complicated enough for each of the factions that you won't necessarily trust yourself when you're playing them. That you're playing oh, it that's right, so true as well. So I, I was I was occasionally worried that I was cheating because that first turn was so epically overpowered that I was like, "Can I?" Can I really just do all of that? And no one's going to go, no, you can't do that. You're in free fall. No one's going to go, actually, you can't do that because they don't know. <laughs> They've not read your rule yeah. book. I might, before we move on, just encourage people to, if they have the ability to look at a picture of this game, because the defense mm. of Procyon 3 with Procyon, I mean, goodness, spelling it is not easy. Look in the podcast video, to, podcast description. Um, but it's a beautiful miniatures game. The boards are pretty dramatic. Like this is a striking thing to look at. And I think one of the reasons we kept going back and playing it is not just the storytelling and the world building, like Ava says, but the art. Like this, this game really feels to me like you know all those games in the 1980s that were, you know, the height of sort of Ameritrash design with Marines running around and shooting laser guns, and that was the thing. This feels like that. It's exciting to be sat with all these alien miniatures and ship miniatures and guns and stuff, but given a very modern design, which is all asymmetric and card-driven and all of this stuff. And it's really useful that it is um, like that. The feeling that it gives you that you do not know what your opponent is capable of. They are like, they're, it's wonderfully alienating in a way that is perfect for the theme. Like, you know, that's something that most of the time, most space sci-fi battles in film and television, like actually everyone's playing roughly the same game. And this is not that. Yeah. And it is wonderful to be able to step outside of, of that and actually be like, 
I do not know how scared to be of you, Quinn. (laughs) (laughs) I've been thinking about this a lot. I think we all have, because this design is fascinating. I mean, the Kickstarter didn't do enormously well, so I don't think there's a lot of hype around it, but it's the closest thing to, you know, games like Root. You know, these drastically asymmetric and ambitious storytelling games where, you know, every side plays completely differently, but taken to a bit of an extreme where, at least in Root, I kind of know, you know, what the other factions are doing. In this, you know... I have no idea. Ava just said a bunch of nouns and then killed one of my soldiers. It's like, <laughs> all right, I guess, you know, there's a card on the table when you set up, which is like for the human space forces, the human fleet, which just reads like ion cannon. And then if you turn it face up, it goes ion cannon charged. What does it do? I mean, you know, it's just, it's nobody kind of knows. I would even talk to Matt and be like, what does that ion cannon card do? And he'd be like, oh, don't worry about it. It's a whole thing. You know, it, you're so detached from this. because And yet, it's oh, because sorry, there is there is no common ground at all between the factions. Like, you know, the reference point being something like Root or Cosmic Encounter even, where there are actions that everyone will take on their go. When I explain a game of, you know, if I'm explaining Root to new people, I'll start by saying, this is what a clearing is. This is what a march is. This is what a battle looks like. And that's common between every faction. But to stress how asymmetric this game is, none of that is present in this game. There's no standardized movement for anyone. There's no standardized uh, battle mechanic. Everyone has a wildly different system by which to take out those actions. But I think that's led me to put myself in a similar position to actually how you feel about Root, where after several games, all I want to do is play the humans because they seem the most normal. (laughs) (laughs) And like the aliens, because I should stress that Ava and I have played either of the alien factions. So we've both played Alien Ground Force, Alien Space Force, and Quinz and Matt have played Human Ground Force, Human Space Force. But I felt, and maybe this is true of the humans as well, I simply don't know. Um, But the aliens felt very frustratingly swingy and definitely, I don't know if this is the case for you as well, Ava, but I felt like there were definitely times where I felt very painted into a corner with its with the restrictions that come with playing as these very swingy card driven races. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I got the impression from uh, that that was a design decision that both of the aliens would have this uh, feeling of being constrained quite abstractly. Like I think there was a bit in the fluff about hive mindedness and and whatnot, meaning that it, it's hard to do precisely what you want to do. And that was the same for both of the factions. Like, in one on one case, you had to have a card that said a particular area in order to attack from or attack into that area, which mm-hmm. meant that there were turns where I was like, oh, all of my pieces are in the wrong place, and I couldn't have planned for this because I drew this hand at the beginning of my turn. And so now I've got to come up with something clever using... And there are, like, backup options and roundabout ways of doing some things, but feeling like you're not getting to play the kind of core of the game felt like that was the thing. Like It's the same for the fleet. You have a particular card. It means you can activate certain types of ships. And I absolutely hammered myself <laughs> in the second <laughs> game by not paying enough attention. Like In trying to figure out what the different ships could do, I accidentally used all of the cards that meant I could activate the ships that I needed to to do anything aggressive, which meant that I got absolutely slaughtered by Quinns in that um, second game. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, <laughs> but no, I think, yeah, we're, we're orbiting a, not no pun intended, like a, a pretty interesting point here, which is 
there's sort of the the way that David Turchi has made the factions distinct is by essentially coming up with a little discrete card game for all of them. I think I know enough about the game now to say that is true. You know, that what you can do is based on the cards in your hand. Actually, it might not even be true for the alien space forces. I don't know. No, it, 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 it is, is, yeah. It is. Oh, okay, cool. Um, but what that means then is that, you know, some of the excitement in Procyon 3 comes from, you know, what cards will you draw? But then when you combine that with not even know how the other factions work, I mean, I remember when I played that first game with Ava when it was my human ground forces versus their alien ground forces. And what happened was like, because you get objective you have victory points for all this different stuff, but I got a bunch of victory points if I managed to kill the alien empress, which is basically Kerrigan from StarCraft on the planet. And I thought I was getting close, but then Ava happened to have a card where the Emperor called like Death Incarnate or some, you know, nonsense, which meant the Emperor just slaughtered some stuff in their space, right? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we just had a thing that was just like, right, I can damage one thing in order to allow the Empress to... Yeah, but what that means is it becomes so much harder to learn a faction. And Root did not have Mm. this problem, because at least in Root, you know, I can look at the decree the birds have built, or I can look at the equipment the Vagabond has, and like, that's all public information. But so much of Procyon 3, because it's card-driven, is hidden information. But not only do I know how to play the game, I also don't know what cards you have, so predicting you is kind of impossible. And so where I kind of land with Procyon 3 is that I enjoy taking my turn in it, sort of, but because I can't predict opponents, because I can't go, ah, they're doing what I thought, it felt to me like a game where I have fun taking my turn for five minutes, and then it's like 15 minutes of waiting for the other three players to take their turns. And it's waiting in which you're most likely getting battered as well. <laughs> like 15 minutes <laughs> yes. where the, you know, the enemy is doing something that you don't really quite understand. But I also find, you know, when you say you sort of enjoy your turn, I think absolutely there's a problem where, you know, not knowing what the consequences of your actions are for the enemy. So, for example, the rulebook explicitly tells you not to go and fight. Uh, what's his name? Is uh, he's called oh, um, uh, Chad? One Mc- of the Max. Chad McDude, <laughs> Big McBuff. Um, it says don't go after Big McBuff because he's gonna destroy you. So naturally, I thought, well, let's go after Big McBuff and I'll do a load of damage to him because if the game. If, you know, if they're saying that he's dangerous, taking him out, surely a huge benefit. I did a load of damage to Big McMuff, and it did what? I don't <laughs> understand. Like, <laughs> I still don't know what it did to Matt and whether it negatively impacted him. And there's something weird about the way that throughout that entire game, I felt like I was just taking chunks out of Matt's forces. I was crushing, like, I completely, well, I don't know, I knocked out two of his heroes. I don't know what it did. And I wiped out a load of his militia. But you guys still won. Like, Matt barely did anything to my force, but I kind of crushed his. The game kind of begins and ends almost in media res. Like, if you let that scenario play out infinitely, the aliens would very quickly win. It's like, it felt like I was building up to a point and then the humans won because they just managed to score some points. Like, you know, you're launching scientists off the planet, but that doesn't tend to be as important as just like, you know, killing some monsters. It's really strange, those victory conditions. I think there's something definitely a bit a bit strange about it being such a race for victory points and all of those victory points come from different places, but there also being these really tempting things of like, ah, but actually what the aliens are trying to do is defeat all of the pylons and get to the city and bombard that and then that's a way to kind of instantly win the game so there's a couple of instant win instant lose conditions that sound much more exciting than just like oh i'm gonna chip at you to to get some extra points and that's gonna pull us over the edge and that's that is typified by the fact that like one of your options as the alien ground forces is to 
spawn from the corpses of your enemies. <laughs> um, uh, so you kill people, there's corpses, and then they can turn into more of your things. Now, the choice that you've got to make there, you can either get more ground forces from that, which is nice, but they are pretty expendable, or you can get victory points. And it's one of those things where what is incentivized there is winning the game at the expense of making the game less interesting for yourself. <laughs> and I hate that kind of decision in a game. And it really frustrated me that like I that first game, I thought we were about to lose because I wanted to get more troops on the ground, even though I should have I knew I should have just got some more victory points. But I was like, but I'm having fun moving the troops around, so... Well, okay, so this is what I want to try and not get us back on track with, but what I feel the audience is getting now, the people listening to this podcast, is we've said, there's this game called The Defense of Procyon 3, and now we're all going to complain about it. But the thing is, it's really rare for you know Team Shuttle to sit down to be like, I'm so excited by this game, we're all going to take time pretty much out of our jobs, because this game isn't going to be for sale for like a year or something. Uh, because it only just got back on Kickstarter. so But we took the time and played it because it's so exciting, because it looks so cool, because there's the promise of asymmetry. And and also, you know, Ava just mentioned there that like, ah, uh, but what I, what the, the fun thing I want to do isn't necessarily what's going to get us points. But that means we should also mention there's so much fun stuff to do in Procyon. 3. Absolutely. Like I did make that decision. I did choose to do the thing that I thought was fun because that's how much fun it was <laughs> that it was worth losing the game Yeah, for. and there's some magical moments. Like for me, uh, as the human ground forces in our first game, you know, you've got these scientists who you need to keep safe and you can evacuate them into space. Cool. And I wanted to sort of interact with the mechanics, so I sent those scientists into orbit, at which point they go onto the spaceboard and the fleet player has to like escort them out of the galaxy. And there was a really fun moment where i just flung these scientists up because i'm like that's what i'm supposed to do right and then matt would look at them and be like what oh no now they're my responsibility (laughs) like a really cool sort of storytelling beat like that you know you can blow up the alien mothership you can both sides can bombard the planet on the ground which wasn't something we saw a lot like just about any cool sort of starship troopers thematic mechanic you can imagine being in this game is in it and we were all sort of pursuing those fun moments but then it's also just a game where you win from victory points. So Yeah, I think yeah. it speaks volumes that all that fun stuff went on. But on that first game, the aliens won by upgrading a technology. Like just uh, by getting four uh, points from making one of their cards better. But that card was never going to get used because it was the very last thing I did in the game just to push us over the victory point limit. Well, I think the defense of Procyon 3 is almost an opportunity to think about like what is asymmetry for and this is what i had in the back of my head as we played our second game and we all swapped factions and went back to the weird manual so we could learn it again because you know the defense of Procyon 3 you've got you know two games happening concurrently you've got teams you've got asymmetry and the thing that crept into my head during our second game is like why why do we have any of this? What if we just played the ground battle by itself? What if the factions were similar enough that they didn't have this radical asymmetry? Would that make the game better? And I ended up kind of thinking like, well, you know, maybe a little bit. I don't know if the asymmetry is improving the game. I don't know if the fact that it's this 2v2 team thing with asymmetric boards um, is necessarily improving the game. I don't know if what's happening in space is really, honestly, making what's happening on the planet that much more interesting. I think it's interesting to look at it as like defining what better is in that situation where I feel like a lot of the complaints that I've certainly felt like I've had are to do with, oh, it doesn't feel like fair, maybe. It doesn't feel balanced. It doesn't feel like a game where each side has an equal opportunity to win, perhaps, or where 
team play as possible because of the amount of randomness or even like the you know the aliens main goal is to destroy this artifact in on a very specific space on the board but all of their movement is tied to cards which are innately random and they're going to be they're always going to be a problem to actually you know you're, you're fighting against the system to get aliens into place but so perhaps as a satisfying game to play in terms of tactics and strategy paying off in a way that's exciting it doesn't work but as a game that is incredibly rich and thematic in the sort of unknowable enemy and that sort of thing it definitely succeeds maybe but you kind of want both in this situation and the asymmetry does one of those things but definitely doesn't do the other the ideas in there and like the kind of feelings that it generates and that like excitement and intensity and that feeling of not knowing what's going on is is excellent but i can't bring myself to i i one of the things that I think is weird about it is that I desperately want to play that first faction that I played again and I want to kind of improve myself in that particular game and I enjoyed that game the most and I, I, I want to kind of see, learn the nuances of that thing and I think that's a good sign. But do you feel like playing as that faction again is going to be any more satisfying because you still haven't played as the human opposition to that faction? I feel like innately to play a faction well, you need to have played its opponent and then by playing every faction, I feel like some of the magic might be gone because that sense of not knowing your enemy is replaced by knowing your enemy and knowing that what they can do is going to be as swingy and random as what you can do. I think it's fascinating that I have absolutely no desire whatsoever to play the human factions. Like, I'm really? quite strongly identified with the aliens at this point and I really, <laughs> really don't want to know what was going on. Everything they were doing looked so faffy and I'm aware that everything I was doing must have looked so faffy. <laughs> but like you were, you were talking about momentum and it looked like you had five different decks and like I couldn't work out what you were doing. Are and when I kidding? wounded one of the heroes, you nearly cried. And like, <laughs> Are you kidding? In our second game when you and I were both in the space, Ava, I was looking, do you have any idea what the alien armada looks like to someone else? It's like, <laughs> well, I'm going to roll these five pink dice, all of which have eggs on. And <laughs> and then I'm going to upgrade one of my cards, not use it. You realize that when we were playing the game, the alien space faction puts cubes on the board and I still don't know what they're for. <laughs> <laughs> and that's like, speaks volumes about how kind of intentionally or unintentionally funny this game is as well. Because that first game, I don't remember laughing at a game more for like a considerable amount of time. It was just every single turn was like, I will use that my activation cubes to place three spore clouds next to my hood. <laughs> and you're like, okay, go ahead. Oh gosh. It's it's I think I do think whatever our complicated feelings on the defense of Procyon 3, I think we can all agree it's very interesting and it's very pretty. And so I if- think it's fascinating. Like I think I I I I really enjoyed getting lost in those systems and I think there's a little bit of a tension between the fact that it is it is gorgeous on the table and those miniatures look pretty lovely. I say on the table this is an imaginary table of course. <laughs> Um, but it looked lovely, and I think that's a lot of stuff that would put it in. But also the price point that it was at in the Kickstarter, I very near, I came very close to ordering it and backing this on Kickstarter. Really, and I opened up the Kickstarter, and it cost twice what I would be willing to pay for it. And yeah, because it was interesting, it was really interesting, and I can imagine putting it in front of some people and them going like, "Oh wow, this is this is fascinating," but. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It doesn't quite 
get over the line for me. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, when I was doing my like, you know, aimless rambling earlier about like, you know, what is asymmetry for in a game? And, you know, what I will say it is not for is all of the custom sculpts, all of the, you know, custom dice in this game, all of the weird extra components that you need because every faction has a different game. That's all driving the price point up. And I would say the defense of Procyon 3 is interesting enough that I would... It's tough, right? Because I would say if it was cheaper, I'd recommend it just to try it. But also if it was cheaper, that would be because it necessarily has less asymmetry, which would make it less interesting. The last thing that I wanted to say about it, though, which I don't know if this is an incorrect take, um, but I think that I found that the theme... Or, or more the setting, perhaps. Like, Quinns, you've talked about the fact that theme and setting are two terms that are used kind of interconnectedly, while theme is more about kind of the emotions it stirs up and setting is the setting. Yeah. And the theme of unknowable enemies and, and that kind of thing, and, and alien, something being truly alien is definitely there. But the setting, I kind of was looking at it as I was writing my notes on the game and just found it kind of to be quite trite and boring like the female characters on the human side are weak and the male characters are strong the human ships are blocky and industrial and military the aliens are purple and they have a hive mind (laughs) and it's an (laughs) it's an empress instead of a queen oh boy it's aliens it's great i mean and the name of the game you know the defense of procyon 3 like ava and i we jabbed about it in the news being like you just put a number after a planet and it sounds like it's sci-fi i mean we did (laughs) we did have some good you know jabs about calling it you know the the fun at pizza parlor five and that kind of thing but it's i think that the theme being to to my eye kind of trite and boring and sci-fi is disappointing because the rest of the game is so boldly experimental mechanically and i'd appreciate a crazy experimentation in that theme as well you know if it went all out on being an oddity i think i would enjoy it more as an experiment and therefore be more charitable towards it but that sci-fi framing and how typical some of it uh is makes me kind of want it to be a you know a very good typical chunky sci-fi game instead of a asymmetr- asymmetrical thing does that make sense yeah i don't know yeah, it does that's about it for this podcast but before we finish out i wanted to talk about some of the things we've been playing and reviewing on the website in the past few weeks and this is going to be weird for me because we're doing time travel again they said we shouldn't but we're back i should have had a watergate review out you should have already already watched it person listening to this podcast because it was oh what a what a fantastic review that i'm not at all nervous about making because it's going really badly but <laughs> what i will say is that watergate is a great game and deserves a good review, which I'll endeavour to make. Wow, this is... <laughs> I love it. I love it. You I will do... endeavour to have made by I, now. <laughs> yes, I will endeavour to have made, and it will be out now, Watergate, a great game that's two-player and fun about the Watergate scandal. Uh, Ava and I, we played this quite recently, and I think we both really enjoyed it. I mean, I definitely enjoyed it. I did a review of it where I was very positive, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really enjoyed it too. I think it um, it does a really great job of having a, a set of tugs of war. Tugs of war? Tug of wars? I don't know which way. You tuglets, I believe. Tuglets, tuglets yes. <laughs> yeah, a series of tuglets between different things where all you need to do is get some of these little pieces onto your side of the board. Um, and that shouldn't be interesting in and of its own right. But the combination of the cards and what you're aiming to do with those pieces makes every every turn feel quite exciting. There's something that I did and will mention in the review, which is that <laughs> there's something lovely about the game being compartmentalised 
into the each round feels like once you finish it you reset and you move on and it's like each fresh round brings like a you know you can be like oh that was a really bad round for nixon but next round we're gonna get it or you can set things up in such a way that like this will be the turn and then those plans crumble because it's swingy in a way that's really exciting because you know if everything's overpowered nothing's overpowered in that i game. love yeah, yeah, yeah. that in games i love when a game will have within its structure be like stop reset like forget everything if you've you know botched your opening few turns it doesn't matter we're just gonna go from dot again i love that yeah, yeah. it's it's a nice but the thing that's nice about it is that like each round you do have a different set of priorities and you do have a different set of things that you're interested in so it's not it, it, it resets and you've got another chance at it and you care about different things now, which means that you and your opponent are going to be reaching for different things. And yeah, I think it's really, really smart the way it does that. Great. And and I will get those sentiments across in a review that is already out. So <laughs> don't, don't worry. Also on our YouTube channel, I did part two of my solo print and play adventure. I listened to the people. They said, we like being told what games to print. And I said, okay, here's some more. Um, there's a game about tidying up bodies, there's a game about building cities, there's a game about saving Earth from aliens, and there's a game about breaking into a cool spy facility, and it's all basically free. Another thing uh, we've been doing recently is lots and lots of streaming. Uh, The other day, uh, I played a six-hour game of Lords of Vegas with Matt, Mike Selica, and uh, Skylar Woodies from the team at Lone Shark. It was brutal and amazing and i was exhausted afterwards in the best way i don't think i will ever play a better game of lords of vegas um and i now have the unenviable task of editing that six hours into something that will fit in a file that will go on youtube so oh boy I do know that a lot of people have had fun um, watching or putting on in the background a uh, uh, sort of playthrough of Twilight Imperium, which is something like six or seven hours long. So if people want to watch the unedited uh, playthrough of Lords of Vegas and be there, because it sounds like this was a truly epic and magical game. It was It was something else. I think that those, uh, we played it with the new expansion, the Underworld expansion, and they add some ways that made the game almost feel asymmetrical in the sense that uh, Skylar's whole thing was he could gamble three times on one turn and every single time he would put his all of his money into the gamble and do it three times and it would either make him or break him every single turn. Wow, so, oh, of course, because if you double and double and double, is that yep. what- yep <laughs> it was brutal uh, and my uh my gimmick for that game was that i was the trash king uh i got a card that meant that my parking lots would pay out double so my whole thing was just to accrue as many parking lots as possible and preside over the trash and then stick terrible bargain bin casinos onto the end of mics which i ended up usurping entirely because twitch <laughs> chat <laughs> twitch chat was on my side the entire time and made that game quite something but it's, it's funny to think that you know people are watching the six or seven hour twilight imperium stream or the six or seven hour lords of vegas stream yeah which we should clarify is a little game i usually recommend lords of vegas is what you should buy instead of monopoly you know yeah. it's that kind of 90 minute economy dice rolling thing yeah i played a game of it last night as well which was an hour and 20 minutes so how we managed wow. to get it to sprawl over six hours was quite something so if you want to uh, watch The Majesty, uh, you can either wait for Tom's edit to appear on our YouTube channel. But if you go to twitch.tv slash shut up and sit down, I think that's the right URL, for about another month, you will be able to watch the stream in its entirety with comments as well. 
Yes. And the comments are quite something. A lot of people were very, very funny during that stream. Uh, we had a lovely um, comment from someone in Australia who stayed up till half five in the morning to watch the entire stream, which is oh, wow. quite something. So if you want to watch other Twitch streams, you can join us on Twitch every Tuesday and Thursday. Uh, here will be a bit where me from the future or the past or whatever, it's time, it doesn't make sense, <laughs> talks about uh, what games are coming up. Hello, uh, this is quickly me just inserting myself back into the podcast just to quickly talk about the stream schedule. On Tuesday the 26th, we'll be playing Fugitive with Tim Fowers. On Thursday the 28th, it'll be Print and Play Lonesome Time with Matt on his own. And on Tuesday the 2nd, it will be Oceans with the designers. Uh, that is all for the stream schedule. Hope you have a lovely Friday or Saturday or Sunday or future or whenever you're listening to this podcast. Bye! Well, that about wraps it up for this podcast. Ava, thank you very much for joining us. It's, it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure for me, and I'll speak for Tom as well. Well, I'll check. Tom, has it been a pleasure for you? No comment. It, <laughs> I'm uh, joking. What a good time it's been with all three of us in uh, the same room talking about games like normal people. Hey, do you remember when we all defended Procyon 3 together? Actually, I, I defended Procyon 3. You two uh, did not, so... No, Actually, you I, defended your right to destroy the universe. I just realised that game, we're all defending Procyon 3 because we all believe it's ours. <laughs> oh, the, the layers of that game like an onion. Uh, thank you very much for listening, everybody. We'll be back with more quarantined ramblings in the near future. Wow. Goodbye. What a, what a selling point. Bye. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> That was a fun podcast.